everybody. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. And uh, we are going to be done with Ephesians very soon. It kind of came as a shock. I finished it today. I, I was just done with it in my notes and I was like, yeesh, it's, what, what do I do now? <laughs> Uh, all right, let's begin with prayer and let's thank God for His Word and our opportunity to hear it, always being reverent and thankful and, and, uh, and humble before God so that we learn and take advantage of this time. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity to be before your holiness, to know, Father, that we are qualified to be in your presence through the work of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We know, Father, that your will will be done. Your purpose, your kingdom will come here on earth. And so we are part of that kingdom. That is our certain destiny. And so with that confidence, Father, we come before you to learn so that we may learn to live the life that is the kingdom. As we see in your word, Father, the, as you are eternal, your life is eternal, and everything that you've given us is eternal. Our inheritance is eternal. Our, our uh, gifts are eternal. Uh, we, what we have with you is eternal life. And Therefore, we uh, seek and ask and knock so that you, uh, or, or we ask you to reveal to us, uh, to each of us personally, the truth of your word and of your plan. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, just a few words concerning prayer before we move to the, uh, the end of this letter. And uh, like I said before, we're going to do the doctrine of prayers when we're done with the letter uh, because it, it, uh, it's important uh, for, very, for many, many reasons. Uh, just so you know, as we've got a bit more to do with prayer once we're done with the book of Ephesians, which won't be long. Uh, <clears throat> Satan would love to convince us that all prayer is frivolous. And I, I think that's his main... Um, his main success, because that's what what seems to me, people all over pray. You hear atheists pray uh, when th- when things are bad. Uh, even they naturally will say, you know, oh God or something. And technically, they're trying to call on God. Uh, but what makes prayer for those who who approach prayer in a serious matter, one of the first things that they struggle with is, you know, does it work? And, and so, as Satan has uh, convinced many and, and still continues to do, that prayer is frivolous. And for Bible-believing Christians, there's always that uh, sovereign will of God, free will of man conundrum. By, and I think Satan plays on that quite a bit, too, with the church. I think he's been very successful at that because... Uh, there's great division in the church concerning those two aspects, uh, which both exist in human history, which is the sovereign will of God and the free will of man. But if we are of the mind that, you know what, God is just going to do what he wants to do regardless of what we either ask him or do or say, and that he's going to, whether we pray or not, he's just going to do what he wants to do, well, then prayer is meaningless. So while it's true that we can't answer the questions concerning God's sovereignty and the and, and, and free will of man and and all of that, you know how that all works. Nobody knows. I mean, you would have to be a you would have to sit with God and say, "Tell me how you do all of this." 
And it'd be like you trying to explain calculus to a two-year-old. Impossible. I can tell you what I can tell you, which you'll understand. And that's what he tells us. He says, look, and it's, you know, people say, well, well, we don't know, we don't know. But there's so much, there's more that you don't know than you know. (laughs) For instance, the very first line in the scripture, in the beginning, God. You understand that? Where was he before? In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created. Well, what was here before he created? And people say, well, it's empty space. No, no, no. Space is a part of the creation. God is not in the material world. And I'm not a material girl. Satan would love to convince us that all prayer is frivolous and that God is going to do what he wants to do. But God tells us that prayer is effective. Paul tells us that prayer is effective. And we find in the scripture people praying all the time. From I mean, throughout the scripture, we see many praying. On Sunday, we saw Nehemiah pray in the in a very uh, uh, dangerous situation. He offered up a very quick, instantaneous prayer, and it worked magnificently. So God is certainly going to do all that He purposes, but He's also going to include our prayers, but the prayers that submit to His will. And they're original with us. They're not, he doesn't force words on us. That's why Christ said you're not going to be heard for your many words. Don't think you're going to be heard for your many words. And we'll find out in the doctrine of prayer that it, you know, the, the type of words you use, they don't matter either. Um, you know, whether it's eloquent or uh, whether you have you know, tremendous insight into things like the human condition or even your own condition. None of that even really matters. Now, God's not looking for you to be, to be like some genius. He's looking for you to spend time with him in discovering him and his way and his plan. And in that process, you do, con- you do discover yourself. So, it's, it's clear that uh, the prayers that have to submit to his will, but... They're our original requests that are under that will. Now, imagine we start here in Philippi for, uh, or in the book of Philippians for obvious reasons. You'll see that imagine the church at Philippi praying for the Apostle Paul and those who are with him. You might call them his team. He has uh, some consistent... Well, we're going to meet one of them today, uh, Tychicus, who's uh, been with Paul for years, had been with Paul for years, and was with Paul to the end. Uh, Same with Luke, uh, same with uh, Mark even, Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, uh, and many more, Apollo. Uh, They were with Paul. And so you can imagine the, the people at Philippi, the believers at Philippi, praying for the Apostle Paul and his team. What would they be praying for? They'd be praying for, now what does Paul do? Well, he travels from town to town speaking the gospel. And generally when he comes into a town, he goes to the synagogue and starts there. And the synagogue is a dangerous place for a man like Paul, uh, as we find out in his, in his history. But, uh, so what would they be praying for? They'd be praying for his safe travel from town to town. They'd be praying for the town to accept the gospel the townspeople, their acceptance of the gospel. And then they find out, after they've prayed this probably multiple times, that Paul's been, well, it didn't happen the way they asked. Paul's been robbed. He's been beaten. Uh, when In the towns that he goes to, very often riots break out, and they try and string him up, and he has to flee. Um, and then he ends up in prison. He's in prison for four years. Uh, what happened to our prayers? They didn't pray for him to go to prison, I'm sure. They didn't pray for him to get beaten with rods or, rods or whipped or become in, entangled in a mob. As he says in 2 Corinthians 12, or is it 1 Corinthians? I can't remember, but I think it's in 2 Corinthians that he, you know, he was in danger. He'd been robbed multiple times while on the road. His life was in danger. Times he went without food. 
Times he didn't have shelter and he was exposed. Times he was on a ship and the ship sunk. Apparently that happened to him four times. So what's up with their prayers? They weren't praying for him to drown in the Mediterranean. So Satan, and somehow, you know, would push upon those who were praying for Paul that it doesn't work. See, what you're asking for, it doesn't work. But if the people had been, if they wait and watch and see, this in several of the Lord's parables, he speaks of this waiting and watching. You know, it's an aspect of prayer that I'm sure we'll look into is that, uh, you know, for instance, when the master is away and you have the steward in the house and the steward could either, you know, not do his work or do his work because the master's not there. And he, he in, in the parable, we're to keep watch. We're to keep watch for the master. We're always to be waiting. And uh, if we watch and wait, we actually find out, at least the, those in Philippi would have found out, and all the rest of them actually, that Paul's imprisonment actually furthered the gospel. And Paul's imprisonment greatly strengthened the church and emboldened those who were afraid to speak the gospel because they were being threatened. And then they were like, well, you know, Paul's in jail and it turned out okay for him and we're threatened and they found courage. And so prayer worked fantastically but it just didn't turn out the way that they expected it to. So look at uh, Philippians 1.12. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. What circumstance? He means that he's, he's jailed. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. What were we praying for? God, for Paul to go to prison? No, but that's how God accomplished what they really wanted, the success of Paul's ministry. See, we think the success of Paul's ministry, if we were back in that time, would have been safe travel. You know, comfort, a whole big acceptance of the gospel and from town to town, which there was acceptance, but it wasn't to the scale that we would have expected or asked for. And we would, that's all the stuff. But in essence, what were we praying for is that his ministry was successful. And the success of Paul's ministry would come about in a way that there is no way that we could imagine. And that's why God says, look, when you are praying, the exact words are not near as important as your understanding of what it is that you should have and others should have to be successful in the Christian way of life, which is your ministry. <clears throat> and what would the, what the Apostle Paul really need? Well, what he asked them to pray for him, which was boldness, courage, uh, wisdom, to speak as he ought to speak. And also he asked them to pray for to be delivered from his enemies. Uh, and to that one, you know, in some cases God said yes, but in other cases God said no. I'm going to deliver you into the hands of your enemies. And by that, the gospel is going to be magnified. So we don't always know how things are going to turn out. But when, I, when we understand what it is the will of God is uh, for our particular lives and for our particular ministries, when we're asking for that, we can know that that's guaranteed to happen. How it's going to happen, we don't know. So if you skip down to verse 19, For I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers, and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So again, I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers. Here Paul is clear that he understands that the prayers of the saints are actually effective to his life and his ministry, and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That's also effective in his ministry, right? Of course. According to my earnest expectation and hope, 
in hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything that, but with all boldness, Christ shall even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So, through the intercession of the saints, all of these injuries to Paul, his imprisonment, and the thorn in his flesh, if you remember, Paul prayed. He said he prayed three times that the Lord would remove it. He heard no answer. Well, actually, he did hear a resounding answer because the thorn never left him. Whatever it was, it didn't leave him. And so the answer from God was no. But then he discovered uh, you know, what the thorn in the flesh was for. He found power. He found strength. He found the ability to glory in his weakness. Whereas he thought his ministry would be more successful without whatever that thorn was that was causing his weakness. He was convinced that his ministry would be more successful without it. And Paul, even the probably the smartest believer ever, doesn't know how God is going to use him. And neither do we. But hence, as we pray with God, or to God, I'll say with God, as we pray to Him, we have this faith that things are going to work out together for good. We don't know how they're going to work out. We don't know what He's going to do, but we know that it is for our good, and that we can rely upon. Uh, I'm sure Satan rejoiced when Paul was imprisoned. He had no idea. Satan probably rejoiced when Jesus was uh, being nailed to the cross as well. Because he would have had no idea how things were turning out. And he's always thwarted. So, you know, uh, turning this, uh, what, what seem like injuries or setbacks to us or God strengthening his people, and in this case, furthering the gospel or furthering your own ministry of the gospel, because each of us have it. Each of us have a ministry of the gospel and of the word. So as Paul said, Christ will be magnified, whether in his life or his death, whether he's free or imprisoned, Christ will be magnified. All right, let's go to Ephesians 6.10. to summarize through and so this section from uh, verses 10 through 20 we're going to effectively close here there's there's way more we could study about it but you know we have time to get to all of that in other places uh, the doctrines in the book of Ephesians are found all throughout the scripture so uh, as Paul writes here finally Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Uh, Being able, just a quick review, is a a present tense. Being able means you're always able. The standing firm, these are infinitives. The standing firm is an aorist, which is like an inerrant tense. Well, it's not defined by time. And therefore, uh, the standing firm part only happens when you're facing the schemes of the devil. The, the point of that is you put on the full armor of God always. You're always ready to stand firm, but you're not always faced with the schemes of the devil. Thank God. There's times of rest. There's times of peace and rest, but we're always ready. Right? That's, that's that point there. For our struggle is not against people, flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There's four things there. We lump them all together into one outstanding, worldwide, atmosphere-wide, flying through the air, controlling of the world in evil and in wickedness. And that's what we're against evil and wickedness throughout the world. And so our struggle, but those are angels now, or fallen angels, not against people. We must be reminded of that, not against people. Therefore, 
Take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, whatever Paul means there by everything, it would probably get back to being ready and able to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, and that's a command, having girded your loins with the truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The first three there, well, all of them are in terms of application. Right? So we looked at this. All of these parts of armor are gifts to us. The truth is given to us. We're made righteous at the moment of salvation, so righteousness is a gift. Uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the gospel, obviously, is a gift. We believed in it, and we know it, and we have it ready to go. But it's living in these things that are the armor of God. Not just having a Bible and you know truth at that church down the street, or wherever it is, but that it's in your soul, and that you've believed it and lived it and you're continuing to believe it and live it because if you don't live the truth you're not going to know the truth righteousness is living righteously we are righteous but we're called to live righteously and we'll see this in paul's close as paul closes this letter he's going to tell us love with god's love not human love easy to get it confused It's not human love. Human love is weak. It's God's love that is strong and eternal. And so, you know, in all of as we'll see, it's all tied together because it's all called immortal. (laughs) God's immortal. Love is immortal. Our inheritance is immortal. This armor is immortal. You remember, it's God's very armor. It's throughout, throughout the book of Isaiah that God himself wears this armor. So we have the truth lived, believed and by faith and loved and lived, righteousness lived, the gospel ready to go, given, which means that we're witnessers. And then he says, in addition to all, or or really what that says is with everything, uh, taking up the shield of faith by which you'll be able to extinguish the flaming missiles of the evil one. Getting back to Satan again. And his flaming missiles are his deceptions, uh, which are these schemes that we're to stand firm against. So now we have faith. All of us have faith. If you believe in Christ as your Savior, you have faith. But this is faith being applied against schemes, against deceptions, of which there are many. And of course, Satan knows the ones that are going to be uh, that are going to trip you up the most. You particularly. Uh, he's not going to attack you where you're strong. He's going to attack you where you're weak, ignorant, and confused, which all of us are in areas. And those are the areas that he's going to go after. So the shield of faith that extinguishes the missiles of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, in reverence to God and obedience to God before His will, in the Spirit, with this in view, to be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Again, petition is asking God. So we pray for ourselves, we pray for others. And then in verse 19, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, I'm in prison. And in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And which, as we saw too, that Paul was uh, destined to speak and already had, to some extent, spoken in Gentile courts. So he's going to have to speak to Roman uh, procurators, Roman governors, Roman kings. And he's asking for prayer that he might speak properly before them as well. And this shows us Paul's not just facing the same situation all the time. Different situations call for different words, different actions, different thoughts. Uh, And he wants to speak as he ought to, and that's what he seeks for. And therefore, as wise and as strong as this man is, he sees that he needs prayer 
to be delivered or to be able to speak properly before these different situations. So he needs help, and all of us do, all of us. As I said, there's a lot more that we could study here, but we'll get to it all. (laughs) Right? Uh, So, final greeting. That's so funny. I look at it. I call this final greetings, and then I read another commentary where they're like, whoever's writing the commentary, I think his name's Lincoln, says, This is not a greeting. This is a closing. Why is everybody calling it a greeting? I'm like, Hey, whoever you are, calm down. What the title we give it doesn't matter at all. Uh, but it's the final, let's call it the closing and a benediction. Uh, there's something uh, quite interesting here we see first off. If you look at verse 21. But that you also may know about my circumstances, how I am doing. Tychicus, is, his name in Greek is Tuchihos. To, uh, no, the emphasis is that the accent, uh, who, you know, they put the accent here in the Greek text. Who knows if 2,000 years ago the accent was in that place. But anyway, the accent is on the last syllable, so it's tuhihos. It just doesn't sound right in English, so we'll call him Tychicus. Uh, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you, and I have sent him to you for this very purpose so that you may know about us and that he may comfort your heart. Oh, see, well, come on, it's the end of the letter. Let's just push through it, and we will. There's, there's not a lot of theology to study here. Um, and what is here has already been uh, spoken of throughout the letter. But notice, first off, that Paul's concerned that their hearts are comforted. This is amazing because Jesus, in the night before he died, if you read through uh, the Gospel of John, where his speech with the disciples is recorded in John 13 through 16, that Jesus is more concerned with them than he is of himself. He's more concerned that they know and are comforted and are able, and Jesus knows he's about to face the cross. Paul here is in prison, and the people he's writing to are not, and he wants to comfort them. And what do we, all of us do, we have a tendency to do this. When we're in trouble, when we're in pain, when things are hard, we don't think of others. God forbid we care about the comfort of others when we're uncomfortable. And yet that is the Christian way of life. And as we progress through our studies, we'll see why that is. You know, why is that a good thing? It's not just so people can say, hey, you know, what a, what a great guy or gal, you know, that we're, we're actually like famous or, or people look up to us because we're so sacrificial. <clears throat> That's nonsense. That's about us. You know, why is sacrificial living so absolutely great? And you you can just say, even without understanding the ins and outs of it, which none of us do as fully as we should, it's God's life. This is what God does. God became a man and died and suffered so that you and I would not suffer. I mean, we still suffer in life, but we won't suffer the, the second death, you know, the eternal life. He was rich, became poor so that we could become rich. Is there's something to sacrificial living that is quite beautiful, marvelous, and wonderful. Now, this is almost identical with Colossians 4. So you're going to flip over just a couple of books. Go to Colossians 4, 2. You'll probably only have to turn like four or five pages. Colossians 4, 2. Now, what we're, we're matching up here is verses 7 and 8, but get it in context. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Praying it at the same time for us as well. So, right, see, this is paralleled to Ephesians. Pray 
devote yourselves. He said pray continually, and but it's the same thing. This devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at all, praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I am also imprisoned, in order that I may make it clear the way I ought to speak. Right? So it's very similar. Conduct yourselves with wisdom. This is not in Ephesians 6. Conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders, making most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. And you you notice uh, how this is written. When you read that, do you hear Paul saying, do this, so that you'll get like crowns and rewards in heaven. Do this so that you'll get something else. In other words, that kind of thinking says that the life is not an end in itself. The life of Christianity is meant to get something else. And that's the true goal, which is what? Rewards or something. And we are rewarded, don't get me wrong. But the the reward is not something else other than the life. Notice how he says here, you see it in the English, it comes out quite well, that you, verse 6, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. What does that sound like? Obligation. It's an obligation. But why am I obligated? And I'm obligated because I'm in Christ. I'm obligated Because I'm a new self. I'm obligated because I have eternal life. See, that's what eternal life does. That's what Jesus did. That's what the Father does. The Holy Spirit does. That's what immortality does. It cares about others. So Paul here says, now look, while you're praying for me to speak as I ought to speak, make sure that you speak as you want to speak. And what is that type of speak? Speech. <laughs> Conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders, outsiders like unbelievers. Making the most of the opportunity, which means you have to actually be alert to what the opportunity is. Let your speech be seasoned with grace, as it were, with salt so that you may know how you should respond to each person. And that's, mag- that's a magnificent point there in, you know, I'm praying for the spiritual life of another. Just remember, you're supposed to live the spiritual life yourself. And the effectiveness of your prayers for others are going to go hand in hand with the success that you have in the spiritual life. To live this spiritual life day in and day out and be, you know, and overcome all the things that pre- pretended that we believed before were the life that weren't to overcome the things that we were deceived with and to be overcomers in this. Now, verses 7 and 8 are absolutely identical word for word in word order to what we read in Ephesians 6. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. See, what you just read there is identical to Ephesians 6. And that brings, you know, it's, it's, a, it's not a, a huge point, but it actually shows us something that's pretty Pretty neat to know. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful, beloved brother. Now, that'd be a good Bible trivia question. Who is this Onesimus? And it turns out that he is Philemon's escaped slave. Now, Philemon is a book that you can read in five minutes. So so that's that's a good Bible reading day. When you have to read the book of Philemon, you're done. Uh, but <clears throat> the, and Philemon is a letter from Paul to 
a dear friend of his whose slave had escaped and some, for whatever reason, we don't know the details, ended up with Paul in either Caesarea or in Rome. And uh, Anisimus became a believer and Paul sent him back. But he sent him back in writing to Philemon in the letter pretty much demanding as an apostle that Philemon accept him back, which we assume that he did. But notice here, when sending Onesimus back, he's not sending him alone. He's sending him with this man called Tychicus, who is uh, described by Paul. And to hear this from Paul is quite a compliment. Our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant or fellow slave in the Lord. So we have in Colossians 4, 7, and 8, we share 32 words in the same order with Ephesians 6, 21, and 22. Some suggest that this means Ephesians was written by someone else than Paul. In other words, whoever wrote Ephesians, they say, some uh, under some pseudonym, under the pseudonym of Paul, that they copied this from Colossians. And I would say, sure is, is they're right. This was copied. I mean, it's word for word. But why would a pseudonymous, I didn't practice this, pseudonymous, 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 pseudonymous? Pseudonym writer. (laughs) Right. Why would somebody who is pretending to be Paul to write this letter uh, write that Tychicus was going to provide information about Paul's circumstances if it wasn't Paul? It is much more likely, and this would have been happen, and Paul, we find this in other Paul letters, that he's likely dictating this letter, and he has a secretary that's writing it down. A lot of people believe that it's Tychicus who's writing it down, and that Tychicus was his faithful secretary. Right? It doesn't mean it's not inspired by God. It's the words of Paul that are written down directly. Now, we find out that Tychicus is in Colossians and Ephesians, and he's going to bring both letters at the same time. He's the mail carrier. Can you imagine? This man has the original letters from the Bible in his satchel, or however he's carrying them, and uh, he's entrusted with this. And his journey? About a thousand miles. Roughly. If Paul's in Rome, it's almost two. Th- it's almost like fifteen hundred miles. But he's got to go somewhere between somewhere around a thousand miles. He's got to travel with these letters. But he's with, with Onesimus. But we also find out that he's not just bringing Colossians and Ephesians, but he's also bringing Philemon. His letter. So Tychicus has three of the original letters of the New Testament, two of which. Are, the, are significant mystery epistles, Ephesians and Colossians. Uh, and he's carrying them. And so it would make sense that as Paul was dictating this, Tychicus is going to, notice what Paul says he's going to do, that Tychicus is not only going to bring the letter, but he's also going to inform them about Paul's circumstances. And he's going to do it in both places. He's going to tell the people in Ephesus, and he's going to tell the churches in Colossae what's going on with Paul. So it makes sense, if he's going to do the exact same thing in both places, that Paul had him just copy it word for word from the first letter, which means, well, we don't know which one was written first. But we know that they're written at the same time. Because of this, we can say with confidence that Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon were all written at the same time by Paul, all three handed to Tychicus, and all three carried by Tychicus by land and sea. He has to cross the sea to get to Asia Minor. And uh, Ephesus and Colossae are very close to one another. And it's probably here that Tychicus is not only going to carry the letters, when he gets there he's going to read the letters. And as Paul's secretary is slash 
servant, faithful servant. Now, Tychicus, who has spent all this time with Paul, he's been with Paul for years, is also going to explain the letters. And so, really, Tychicus becomes the first pastor, exegete of Paul's letters to Asia Minor. What an important man. And in the first century, almost everybody would have known of him. And in our day, nobody knows him. And you know what? Nobody's going to know you either. <laughs> 2,000 years, quite a, it better be okay. 2,000 years from now, no one's going to know who you were at all. Nor me. Um, is Tychicus qualified to teach Paul's letters? Well, it turns out that Tychicus was sent by Paul. At the end of Paul's life, he was sent by Paul to Ephesus to take over Timothy's job as pastor. So Tychicus is actually going to pastor in, uh, Paul sends him to Ephesus, and he also sends him to Crete to pastor the churches there. And his name first shows up in Acts chapter 20 when Paul was on his way to Jerusalem. And that's the time in Paul's life he leaves Macedonia to go to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem he gets arrested. And Tychicus was with him on that journey. And he's not a Jew. Tychicus is not a Jew. He's a Greek. He's from Asia. So there's a whole lot to this. Because if you remember, in the early church, the great conflict between the two groups of people were first off Jew and Gentile. And Tychicus is you know, uh, not Jewish. And yet, he's going to take letters from the former Pharisee, the Apostle Paul, to churches that have both Jews and Gentiles. And he's going to read and, and communicate the meaning of those letters as not a Jew. And right at the beginning of the church. Um, so, he's greatly valued by the Apostle. And that's one of the first lessons we get here in this you know, this very fairly short closing or benediction, is that he's a model to us. He's not the apostle himself, but how important is he? Is he just a mail carrier? Oh, heck no, he's more, way more than that. Right? He's, a, he's Paul's, probably Paul's scribe. He's entrusted with these letters. That means he's faithful. Can you imagine if on the way he decided to read them and went, nah, I don't like that, and he, and he scribbled something off and rewrote it? I mean, he it would take him, how long does it take to travel in the ancient world? Almost a thousand miles by land and by sea. It's going to take you a couple months, at least a month. He's got time to read them. He could lose them. He could sell, I don't know, he could burn them. He could do anything. Well, he's faithful. And that's what Paul tells us. He's a beloved brother. And that means he's loved by the community of believers, but he's also beloved by Paul. And Paul's not going to love some, you know, in this way, Paul's, of course, going to love all mankind like we are, or are too, but, you know, he's loved by Paul because he's faithful. And his servant is his title that Paul gives him, which is the same word that we get deacon from in, in the Greek New Testament. Diakonia, that's what he's called. And But he's faithful. So he doesn't just have the, whether he has an office of deacon or not, we don't know. Actually, we don't know from the, from the original uh, New Testament whether the office of deacon was an actual office yet. We knew it would become one. And it seems like it was. Uh, but they, we don't see them being ordained. But there's a lot of people in the New Testament that are called ministers. In fact, Jesus himself is called a minister, which is servant. That's another translation of this word. And my point about that is, is that it's not so much that he holds the office. It's that he's faithful. As a servant to the body of Christ, He's faithful. So he loves God and he's trustworthy. Now, how much doctrine he knows, we don't know that. But if you're faithful and trustworthy and you love God, which means you would love the brethren as well, 
that the sky's the limit for your learning. The sky's the limit for your understanding. So Paul uses them again to deliver this letter, plus the one addressed to Philemon and the one addressed to Colossae. As we just read, in Onesimus is also called a beloved brother. So Tychicus is called a beloved brother. It's the same words, beloved brother. I mean, the loved, uh, loved by the brethren, and this should be uh, in what all of us should be to one another. Beloved, all of us in the body of Christ. We've got different personalities. We've got different backgrounds. We've got different education levels. We've got different, almost everything. A lot of differences. And yet, every believer should be in the eyes of his fellows a beloved brother or beloved sister. Because we're in the body of Christ. I I have to deal with, I have, have had to deal with, I won't tell you when, let's just say years ago. That, you know, people in the body of Christ who who didn't see eye to eye on certain things, and it caused it can easily. It, all of you have seen it because it's it's a it's a uh, uh, occupational hazard with human beings that we we come in conflict with one another, and from those conflicts we can develop great divisions. And Satan twists his evil little mustache and, and you know, grins and laughs. So it should not matter what our status is, what our position is, what our influence is, whether it's in the church or in the world. Again, we could deem Tychicus, he's just a mailman. You know, is he important at all? Maybe people, what of those who didn't know him and said, oh, well, like in, in uh, Corinth where they, they had played favorites. You know, in Corinth, some like Paul, some like Titus, some like Apollos, some like Peter. And they created divisions amongst each other. What if someone said, ah, Tychicus, he's no apostle Peter. He didn't walk with the Lord. I said the same about Paul. Because he didn't walk with the Lord either. But, you know, who cares? How do you know what a person does? in their prayer life, in their worship? How do you know? I mean, unless it's something glaringly obvious that they have a sinful lifestyle. But when we don't know, we should, even still, we should uh, see every believer as a beloved brother and a beloved sister. And take all, all the prejudices that we're all, we've all developed in our souls from some, I think, are ingrained a bit in our DNA. Uh, most of them are environmentally had by our, our growing up, what we've learned. We learn our prejudices or our, ju- our judgmentalism. Uh, and it has no place in the body of Christ. So Paul, uh, as he says here, I sent him to comfort you, to tell them... Unfortunately, we don't know what what Tychicus told them. We have the letter, but we don't have... So Paul said, he's going to fill you in about what's going on with me. It would be really nice if someone jotted that down and we had it, but we don't. But what we do know is that Paul had great anxiety that the Colossians uh, were upset about him. Uh, Paul never went to Colossae. But Epaphras, their pastor, came to Paul. It was probably when he was in Caesarea and uh, told him the great love that the church had for him as well as their concern. And this would have touched Paul greatly. So what does Paul do? He said, well, you know, let him trust God. No, he actually sends Tychicus and Onesimus on a pretty long journey to go to these churches, the churches in Asia, and tell them that things are okay. And to bring the letter. So Paul didn't say, well, let go and let God. You know? Paul didn't say, well, they'll, you know, who cares? God is in control. Not only does Paul pray for them, but he takes the steps to ease their anxiety. And again, why should we do that? Because we should. 
the Christian way of life. It's God's life. This is how God is presenting it to us in the Scripture. He's not saying to us, live my life so you can get this thing over here. He's saying, my life is the thing itself. My life is the reward. And you will, if you live it, you will find that out. So Paul is greatly touched and provides Tychicus, provides Tychicus to, to give them comfort. But then to confirm that, go back to Ephesians. Look at Ephesians 3.13. One of the problems with wearing this boot is one leg is longer than the other. I keep having to shift my weight. I should have gone bootless. Ephesians 3.13. So as Tychicus is going to say whatever he says, Paul is doing okay. The things are working out for the furtherance of the gospel and, 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 and it's, it's successful spiritually no matter how bad it looks. And then, then this is confirmed in the letter in Ephesians 3.13. Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf. For they are your glory. Why is that? Because Paul is glorifying God, and now you have heard how. They heard it from Tychicus and Onesimus. They heard the situation with Paul, and now they read here, which is enough for us. We don't have to know what they told them or the exact situation with Paul, but we know. What is enough that the the tribulations that Paul went through were for the glory of God. It wasn't a hindrance at all. At first it looked like it, of course. And to everybody it looked like it. But in the end it wasn't. It actually turned out for the glory of God. And whenever, whenever we see the glory of God from the actions of a person, from reading the scripture, from praying, from thinking God's thoughts, whenever, when things start to click with us and we get those aha moments and we see something we haven't seen before, when you see the glory of God, that glory becomes your glory. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, it's exactly what God says, is that you look into my face like a mirror and my glory shines forth into you. And that's what changes us. You said we we often you know we might think that we get changed by knowing all these doctrines, but that's not actually true. We're changed by knowing God. The doctrines themselves, which are systematized, are leading us to know Him. We're learning of a person, not a big book of theology. The big book of theology needs to be studied, and it is about that fat. <laughs> The one, one of the ones that I, that I have. But anyway, the, the big book of theology is designed to show you God's face. And that's why we study it. The Bible itself, it's ink on paper. But the things in it are designed to show you God's face. And what you see there transforms you. And, to, and think back to what God said to Moses. You can't see my face and live. And then Christ came to earth, crucified us, and then gave us divine life. Now we can look straight into God's face and not die because we have the same life that he has. It doesn't make us God, but we have eternal life. We have immortal life. Moses didn't have that, not yet. So why does Paul care about their hearts? Well, let's see. Um, He doesn't want to go down in history as one who built a weak church. No, that ain't it. He doesn't care about that a lick. He cares about the people. Right? You you know this in people. Do they care about... That's why Jesus said, look, a bad tree doesn't produce good fruit. If you just look at them long enough, you'll see the fruit and you'll know what they are. Does a person really care about others? Or do they ultimately care about themselves? I mean, in, in easy, it's picking low fruit is to go after politicians on that. 
where they get on TV and they smile and they tell everybody, we care, we care about you, we care about you, we care about you. And no, you don't. It's obvious that you don't. Um, but, you know, for, for us, you can't hide it for very long. You know, as, as um, and Paul writes in First Timothy, where they have a form of godliness, they have a shell of religion, but they've denied the power of true godliness. And that eventually comes out. Paul has served these churches. And in prison, he's still concerned about them. And he can't go himself. He's locked up. Uh, He said, I'm an ambassador in chains. So he sends these men that he trusts. He calls them faithful servants. He's not going to send just anybody. He's not going to like hire a courier. He's going to send people he trusts, which shows that we need people we trust. I'd say we need at least one. I bet there are probably some people whose lives they, they don't have any and that's God's plan for them, but I, I think that's pretty rare. I think everybody has, everybody is given by God at least one. And if you don't have one right now, don't despair. It's, are you still alive? Because you might have one soon, you know. But our individual ministries as it is for Paul, as it is for us, our individual ministries will not be successful if we don't love the people we serve. We're to serve, equip, supply all others that we see that would need whatever we have, whether it's our spiritual gift, whether it's whatever, whether it's our material, money or time. Our individual ministries will not be successful if we don't love those people. And you can't fake it. There's no way we can say in our, in our hearts, all right, I need the love of God. I'm going to get it right now. doesn't come that way. And then you say, well, pastor, how does it come? It's, uh, it comes from the knowledge of God. The love of God comes from the knowledge of God. But not just you know academically learning it. It's knowledge and faith in that knowledge. And by faith in that knowledge, therefore, you have to live that knowledge. So by faith in the knowledge, living the knowledge, the love of God comes to us. And it's not something that we can produce in our own selves or muster up in our own selves. It is a gift of God just as much as the knowledge of God is a gift of God as God himself is a gift. So how can our individual ministries, all designed by the Father, that we might serve and equip one another be successful if we don't love the people we are to serve. We'll do it grudgingly. We'll do it half-heartedly. There'll be limits to it. And look, I, I know how hard it is, especially for some of the people that God puts in our lives. For some people, it's so easy to serve them and so easy to love them. And for others, well, I think God puts those people in our lives on, on purpose. So Jesus would tell us, love your enemies Don't just greet those who greet you. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And he said how blessed you will be when you do that. And when he says blessed, he means happy. That's what the word means, actually, originally. It means to be happy. Happy you will be. All right, so uh, just a a start, a little bit of a start on Tychicus. We don't really have much more to see about him. We're going to look at him as a minister, just to look at the word minister, and then we'll get to the benediction, which Paul uses four words to wrap up this amazing epistle. Peace, love, faith, and grace. And they're all in like, Two quick sentences, and then he finishes. So it ends the epistle with the word immortal. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that you bless us with truth. Thank you that you bless us with the opportunity to serve. And we can see those in the scripture, like Paul and Tychicus, that are faithful to you. We see the impact of their lives and 
how wonderful that life is. Let us, Father, not be duped by um, the deceptions that would lead us to, to try and live righteously and ethically for our own selves, but for your sake, to your glory, so that we may truly live your life. We cannot live a glorified a life that glorifies you for ourselves. And we understand that. May we live for you, Father, through your word and your spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.